From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a new episode of For What It's Worth. I hope you'll join us for the next hour as we break down the big news stories of the week that really impact your wallet. We've got a lineup of great guests today. I hope you'll stick around. We will be talking to uh, Barry Choi. He is a personal finance expert. He writes a lot about loyalty points and credit cards that give you loyalty points. A new American Express survey shows that we have actually ramped up our use of credit cards in the last three years. Now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the pandemic really forced us into touchless payments. So even if we weren't using our phone to pay for items or we were paying cash sometimes, we really tried to all of a sudden use any technology that was available that we didn't have to touch the terminal. And that normally was using your credit card, right? So loading your card onto your phone, into your Apple Pay or Google Pay, and then using that to pay. But a lot of young people especially are also looking at loyalty points that credit cards offer and they want to rack these up so they can buy things like groceries, get cash back. Older Canadians are actually more interested in travel points. But I'm always concerned that if you are shopping with reward and loyalty in mind, are you spending more than you would if you were just paying with a regular credit card that gives you nothing back? So I'll be talking to to Barry about some of the things that we should be aware of if we are really working towards a reward on our credit card, some of the pitfalls of using your credit card to buy things uh, in, in the hopes of getting a reward, maybe a free trip, maybe a bunch of groceries, whatever it is, and the ways that we can sort of avoid that temptation to spend more than we need to. And later on in the show, if times are tough, we tend to cut back on all the extra spending, right? This is the typical thing that anyone should do. Uh, We don't go out for dinner as much. Maybe we'll cut out that family vacation, unfortunately. But a lot of us also cut back on how much we're saving for the future. So if money's tight and it's really getting difficult to pay those monthly bills, one way that we save is by actually stopping saving. It sounds a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? But I will be speaking to my guest, David O'Leary, later in the program about about some of the risks that we take when we stop saving, especially into our RRSP, all that compound interest, long-term savings, all the things that we don't get if we don't consistently save into that account. But before we go to those two interviews, I wanted to highlight a conversation that I had with our very own Kelly Cotrera of The Kelly Cotrera Show uh, here in Toronto, where I'm based. She has her show in the afternoon. Uh, We talked about how she went into a bank and the bank uh, representative said to her, hey, because of the, uh, the, the, the balance that you carry in your bank account, you are actually uh, qualified for all these perks. And so all of a sudden, she didn't have to pay an annual fee on her credit card. She got all these free things that she could do, transfer money for free, and all these other perks that she didn't even know were available to her. And her criticism was, 
why didn't the bank tell me this before, you know, many, many years of me just paying out of pocket for some of these things uh, before I came into the bank. So let's have a listen to her uh, setting up exactly what happened uh, on, when she went into the bank. So what I did yesterday, Rabina, is I went mm -hmm. in and I met with a personal finance expert and I started to talk about where, how I could make my money work for me, whether it was taking some savings that I had and putting it into a, you know, a, a three-month GIC, which will make me some interest, or locking some away for a year, or what do I do with the money so that I, I can make it work for me and make it make more money, right? And that should be something that the bank, you know, instructs you on, I think. Not every, every once in a while, the only call I'll get or the only push I'll get is, would you like to increase the amount on your credit card? Because they want me to spend more on my credit card. So I go mm -hmm. in there, I'm talking away about what to do with my money and how to work it, how to make it work for me. And she says, oh, I notice you keep a, such and such a balance in your, your um, savings every month. Um, so because of that, you should automatically, um, we're going to get rid of your, uh, you've got a credit card with us, we'll get rid of your fee for that travel visa. Yeah. And it's over a hundred bucks that fee, by the way, because I like to collect travel points a year. So I hope I haven't already had it, you know, come about that I paid it this year because now that's being waived. And then she's like, well, and you can also get uh, unlimited this and that and e-transfers. And I'm like sitting at the desk thinking, why, if the bank, we do all our banking now online, why doesn't this automatically kick in? So what I told Kelly was that the reason that the bank didn't tell her about the perks that were available to her are twofold. One is that uh, they want you to continue to put money into their bank account and they want to charge you fees because those fees obviously help their bottom line. The other thing is, is that when you get those perks and fees, you actually have to sign up for a totally different kind of bank account. So in this case, she would sign up for a bank account that had a very high fee. And in order for them to do that, you have to sign some paperwork to say, yes, you know, I agree that if I go under this balance, that I will pay this, you know, this relatively hefty bank fee. Now, in her case, um, she did sign up for it because she wants to get, you know, the, 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 the annual fee waived on her credit card and other things that she's going to save money on. But one word of caution I give people is that you do have to carry a pretty high balance to get these fees waived. For example, at some banks up to $5,000, right? You have to carry a $5,000 balance all month in order to not pay the, the, the monthly fee that you have for that, that account that gives you all these perks. So I think that's one thing that is should be clear. It's not that you carrying this balance gives you perks, is that you carrying this balance means you can get an account and not pay the bank fees, but you need to keep that balance in order to waive those bank fees. So that's one thing. And the other thing is if you dip below even one cent in the month, you will have to pay that hefty fee. So really weigh all of your options before you sign up for this new kind of checking account or savings account that gives you all these perks. You do have to keep a pretty hefty balance. And remember, the bank loves it when you leave money in their bank accounts because they then use that money to lend out other products or use it to, 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 to show they've got some money on their books. And so that there is, you know, there you are giving something away. You're obviously not getting very much interest on that money either. So think about it before you sign up for one of these accounts. They are uh, giving a lot of perks, 
but definitely you got to give something in uh, in return as well. It's a bank. Banks are a business. They're not a resource. And so you definitely need to, uh, when I say resource, I mean public resource. It's not like a library where they're there to serve you. Um, they are there really to get business out of you. And that's why um, when they saw that she had this balance in her account, they said, well, you should sign up for this different kind of account because it will give you perks. It's not necessarily that you, because you have all this money, we're going to give you this stuff for free. Uh, we have a fantastic show coming up. After the break, we will be speaking to Barry Choi about some of the pitfalls and the positives of using credit cards that give you rewards. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is for what it's worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. Canadians are charging more to their credit card as the pandemic accelerated the use of touchless payments. Many are doing it for convenience, but many are also looking to rack up points for things like grocery, travel, and cash back. But are they doing it the right way? And are there any pitfalls when it comes to using our credit card to get a reward? To talk about this, we are joined by Barry Choi. He runs the website Money We Have, and he writes about loyalty points. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. You know, this has always been a bit of an obsession of mine. And I got to say that I've got a love-hate relationship because I understand why it would be, you know, make sense to use a card where you're getting points, where you get a reward at the end that may actually save you a bit of money. But on the other hand, are you buying things that you don't need? <laughs> What's been your experience when it comes to the use of loyalty cards, like credit cards that have some reward attached to it? Um, are people using them to actually buy things they need? You know what it really depends on the program and the card you have like it is a game you know like the loyalty programs the loyalty cards the credit cards they give you more points depending on what you're buying so if you're using your credit card responsibly and what i mean by that is just doing your regular purchases paying off your bill in full at the end of the month you're earning those rewards for free however if you're part of a loyalty program that gives you specific offers you know, spend $20 on X item, get 10,000 extra points. Or if you buy three of this product, you'll get extra points. That's where things can be problematic because you are you could be spending more to get those extra points. But, you know, if you need those items anyways, then it's probably worth it. Now, this um, survey by American Express says that we've actually accelerated our use of credit cards, uh, especially cards that have a reward attached to it. And the 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 age uh, that the credit card user is uh, really uh, dictates the kinds of rewards they're looking for. Older Canadians are looking for travel. Younger are looking for groceries. Has that been your experience um, when it comes to the way we use reward cards that, uh, that, that younger people are actually looking for those staples like groceries and other things they can use uh, to reduce their household bill? You know, I am seeing that too. So it's really interesting that this survey confirms all of that information. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Uh, younger people, they're not thinking about necessarily big purchase items like travel, whereas, you know, things like your daily groceries, people understand that that's money I can redeem back right away. So whether you're part of a grocery loyalty program or a credit card program, such as American Express Membership Rewards, those are points that you can use right away to reduce your expenses. Uh, and especially for younger people who may not have as big of an income as 
boomers or the older generation. And to me, those people typically spend more, so they're able to earn more rewards. And that's probably why they're looking for bigger ticket items to use rewards for, just because they've got more points saved off, saved up. They realize, hey, uh, I can get a couple hundred dollars off this vacation or this flight. It's probably worth saving it. I love reading about how people collect travel points and then go on these fantastic holidays, going first class on like some of the best airlines in the world. I just feel like, and this is just speaking from my experience, that travel reward cards especially have really gained in popularity. What has been your experience? Are people more interested now because the pandemic's over uh, to rack up those travel points so they can go on a vacation? You know, I think a lot of the increased interest has to do with content creators. A lot of people are talking more about how they got those luxury trips uh, in first class. Like, you know, a few years ago, I flew to Dubai on Emirates in first class uh, on points. And that trip was worth $20,000. And I literally paid for it in points. So I think people are more interested in it. And more importantly, I think a lot of people realize that there's a lot of value there. Uh, once you realize that, yeah, I could get you know $10 off my groceries, but at the same time, if I can get a business class flight for that's worth thousands of dollars for the same number of points, uh, it's probably a much better deal, right? So tell me, I mean, this is a side note, probably a little bit of interest as well. How'd you do that? How'd you get so many points uh, so that you could fly first class to, to Dubai? What was your process? You know, it's a bit of a game when it comes to loyalty points. You need to figure out where you want to go first and then work backwards. At the time, I had always planned to go to Dubai. This is 2019. And at the time, going into Dubai didn't actually require that many points. It was roughly 150,000 points one way. Now, to listeners, that may seem like a lot of points. But when you think about it, it's it can be just two or three signups for new credit cards. And it's not like it did all in one month or one week. It, it was a three-year process, right? So if I applied for one new credit card a year, eventually it would have enough points. So I always had that goal in mind. And eventually I got there. So I think that's the message there. That's, you know, like anything, it takes time uh, to save up and to get to, to get to that ultimate goal. But going back to the original reason why I wanted to have you on, um, you know, there is a risk definitely involved with uh, reward cards, reward loyalty points in general, that we will be um, incentivized to spend money on things that we don't actually need because they come with extra points or because you get bonus points that day. Um, how can someone just... Uh, uh, keep themselves away from that temptation if their ultimate goal is to get rewards, but for things they actually use in their life. Oh my goodness. You got to stop reading the websites like mine because we get obsessed with these things. You know, I'm part of a Facebook group, which focuses on a grocery loyalty program that talks about all these great deals. And sometimes I read what people are posting and I'm like, this is a fantastic deal, but I do not need 40 tubes of toothpaste, right? <laughs> like, sure, they might cost me 50 cents each, but it'll last me like four or five years. I don't need that kind of stuff. But in general, I think it's, it comes down to basic personal finance. If you're going to spend a certain amount of dollars, you got to ask yourself, how badly do I need this product? For me personally, if I'm going to spend more than $100, uh, I sleep on it. It's that simple. And if I wake up in the next morning and I still need, still want that product, I'll just go ahead and buy it. But quite often, I wake up and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't need it that badly, so I just hold off. But you know, when it comes to day-to-day -day expenses, I will choose to pay with my credit card if over cash and debit because it earns me rewards. And eventually, I earn enough rewards that it, it pays itself. And as, as I mentioned earlier, whenever I see a really good credit card offer with a huge welcome bonus, I am very tempted to sign up. 
And uh, you've parlayed this into an entire career in some ways. You're now writing about loyalty for the Global Mail. Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, why there is such an appetite to, to learn about loyalty and loyalty points. You know, it comes down to survey results and what people are feeling these days. We all know inflation is high. People are looking to save money. Uh, people look online and they see those luxury travelers and they want to be, they want to have a part of that. And what's really interesting is every single loyalty program is different. Some are simply better than others. And you really need to understand how your loyalty points work. And I think any consumer, they just realize that they want to maximize their value. They don't want to give up points or give up dollars because that's essentially what it's worth. So when you start to analyze each individual program, you, you can see the benefits. For example, with American Express membership rewards, you, you can redeem 1,000 points for $10 in a statement credit. Now, this is relevant because it applies to any purchase you've made on your, your uh, eligible credit card. However, some other loyalty programs, you might only get maximum value for, say, travel redemptions. If you were to use it for a statement credit, you could devalue your value of your points by 30 or 40%. So knowing how your points work can make a significant difference on your day-to-day -day expenses. Now, loyalty programs were created so that companies can gather information about customer behavior. Do you think that people realize that they're giving away a lot of their uh, personal data, the, the way that they spend uh, so that they can have targeted ads sent to them? Do you think people get, get that connection? You know, I think consumers are being more aware of how that information is being shared. You know, I'll be talking about something with my wife and all of a sudden I'll have an ad on it later. And, you know, every single computer or phone make manufacturer says, oh, oh, we don't listen to you. Of course you listen to it. We literally said it out loud and now I'm getting an ad for it. There's no chance it's not happening. Um, and I think some people are totally against that. And that's why they don't use loyalty programs. But when done correctly, I think it's, it's really smart because some grocery loyalty programs, what they'll do is they'll give you offers for things you're regularly buying. And even if you decide not to buy it, because you know, how many bags of chips do you need, they'll allow you to save that offer to use it the following weeks. So, so it can really benefit you. Uh, but at the same time, I think a lot of people don't like the fact that our information is being shared because we're giving up too much of our personal information. Okay, Barry, I'm going to put you on the spot for our last question. But is there a card right now, a credit card that you are most excited about that if somebody wants to start racking up some points for anything that you would say is the best one to go to? You know, the best credit card for day-to-day -day spending is most likely the American Express Cobalt card. You get five times the points on eats, eats and drinks, three times the points on streaming services, two times the points on transit and travel, and one point per dollar spent on all of the purchases. As you can hear, that's a lot of points you can earn. Yeah, that is definitely. And those are things that most, all those things that you mentioned are, are things that we uh, that we purchase any day. And I just want to make a disclaimer that we are absolutely not sponsored by any credit card company <laughs> or any bank and that we're just, you know, simply talking about how we can really maximize our use of rewards. And because like, like you, uh, who writes about personal finance, uh, we just want to help people and their bottom line. And, and, and if you're, if you've got these cards, you should be using them to the to best of your ability. Barry, thank you so much for joining me today on, on the program. This has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Thanks so much, Barry. When we come back, how is the current economic climate affecting how we invest? And what are the long-term implications of taking time off our retirement savings goals? I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck.
new survey finds a third of Canadians are investing less due to economic uncertainty. The good news is for those who are investing, they are making retirement savings a priority. To talk about this survey and what we can do to find the money to keep our investment goals in check when finances are tight, we are joined by David O'Leary, personal finance expert at Wealth Rocket and the founder of Kind Wealth. Hi, David. Hi, Ramina. Um, you know, how is this current economic environment impacting uh, the way that we invest our money? Well, what we're seeing is people are a little more nervous and, and skittish about it. Uh, also, you know, their, people's ability to to make investments have been impacted. Um, so what, you know, what we've been really seeing is this for a lot of people is the first time that they've been experiencing economic um stock market and and kind of interest rate uncertainty um we've had i think some shorter periods of uncertainty with covid and things like that but they were not they didn't last all that long before things had kind of recovered and this is sort of i think the first meaningful sort of cracks in the economic foundation that that a lot of especially younger generations are experiencing and even for those who are a little older it's been quite a long time and you know memories are short and you sort of forget what it was like. Um, and so what that's happening, what's happening is that it's just creating a lot of fear and, and uncertainty, I think, in people's minds. But it's also coincided with this period of very real. So there's the perceptual aspect of, oh, boy, I'm reading all these doom and gloom in the headlines. And then there's also the very real higher cost of living and inflation, and people are feeling the consequences of that. And so what I think situation we have is that people both have less money to invest because the cost of living has gone up faster than wages, but also this sort of fear about making investments because of what's going on in the markets and with interest rates and all that. So that's a powerful combination to, to deter people from you know continuing to invest. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard sell. Someone who's finding it hard to pay their day-to-day -day bills and to buy groceries uh, to say, you know, hey, could you put a couple of bucks away for retirement, which is 40 years in the future? And this is especially true for those who may have young families and they're just stretched, um, you know, as it always is for somebody who is, you know, in a new mortgage, has young kids, all the things that you have to pay for uh, when you're in that stage of your life. Uh, but I, like I mentioned there in the intro, those who are investing, they're staying focused on those long-term goals. Talk to me a little bit about how retirement is still a priority for those who are able to put money away. Yeah, it's interesting. So we did see that, you know, out of the, the when we asked people what goals they had for their investing, retirement came out at number one with 55% of people responding uh, that they were saving for retirement. And that's it certainly is a long-term goal. It's one that you'd expect as people get older, they think more and more about, but we're also seeing kind of younger demographics thinking about it at an earlier stage. And I think part of that is, is, is fueled by the, um, sort of this idea of um, movements like FIRE, where you're kind of trying to achieve financial independence at a really young age. And I think there's just sort of more awareness about longer-term goals like retirement at a younger age than certainly I feel like when I was you know, coming up and growing up. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's good to know. I think that we just have more access to information, and especially the last three years, 
this has really been uh, in the headlines, you know, interest rates, cost of living, housing prices, that no matter who you are, if you're, if, if you're watching even a bit of news, uh, money is on your mind. And I think that that's in some ways had a positive effect where young people are thinking more and more about their long-term financial goals. Your, your survey found something really interesting that young people are uh, investing in different ways than maybe their parents' generation did. What are their, uh, what are their uh, needs when it comes to investing? What are they demanding out of the money that they put away? Yeah, I mean, one of the clear things that we've seen in, in both and, you know, through evidence, but also through surveys like this, where you ask folks is that they um, more and more want to align their, you know, invest according to their values. Um, and so that can mean different things for, for different people. But um, I, I think we're seeing this trend, not just in investments, but also the way people spend their money. I mean, we've seen lots and lots of headlines, right, of, of companies making decisions that their, um, you know, consumers find, you know, uh, offensive or, you know, not aligned with their values. And so they stop purchasing from them. And we're seeing the same thing with um, investments. I think that trend is maybe not quite as pronounced as we see with spending, because everybody, it's so clear to people that, you know, if I stop spending with a company that hurts, that can hurt them. Um, and, and investments maybe is a little less intuitive, but we are seeing clear signs that, that, that people want their investments to align with their values. And for those who are finding it hard to invest uh, for their long-term financial goals, what are the risks that they're taking by even just taking time off uh, from putting money, for example, into their RRSP or their TFSA? Yeah, I mean, what you start to lose out on is the power of compounding. And that's, you know, that's the, you, know, you want to strike this balance between, and everybody's different, right? So their mindset, their attitudes and beliefs, behaviors around money is very different from one person to the next. But I think if we could generalize about the population at large in, in Canada, and I think most of kind of North, you know, well, at least the US and Canada developed kind of Western countries, um, there's a very consumer driven culture and we have no shortage of, of ads and incentives to make us spend more money. Um, and so if anything, I think generally speaking, we probably as a whole have a propensity to spend more than, um, you know, we can necessarily afford that obviously doesn't apply to everybody, but, um, but by doing that, by taking that dollar away from, you know, that you otherwise could have saved and spent, spent it and said, it's not just the dollars that you're, you're spending that you're losing. You're losing it on all the compounding that would have happened had you invested that and, and allowed it to compound over the long term. So just to sort of give you some example, because compounding is not really intuitive of, of math and you usually have to use a calculator to, 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 to do it properly. But um so let, I'll just give you, a, you know, just to give you sort of an example of this, if you had an investor who is, you know, let's say in their 20s and they're putting aside $50 a month until they had $5,000 in savings, um, they're, they're 20 years old now and then they stop and just leave that money invested for 40 years. So they've got 5,000, they leave it invested for 40 years. That'll turn into $35,000. But if you just continue to keep contributing the $50 a month indefinitely, um, that ends up... Um, turning into $107,000. And you could say, well, of course, they kept investing 50 more dollars a month. But that that extra $50 a month was only $29,000 over the lifetime. So so you grew your, you grew your on top of the 5,000, you, you put in 29,000 your own money, but you accumulated 78,000 additional dollars. And so one way to think about it is like, 
you know, if you're compounding for 40 years at a 5% interest rate, $1,000, if you spend it now, it's like giving up $7,000 in the future, you know, 40 years from now at 5%, it can grow by that much. And so I, I like to talk to people about in those terms, like, you, you don't want to spend, you know, spending this is not just the $1,000 now or the $100 now, it's about what you've given up in compounding interest. And it's also really important to keep up the habit of savings. It's just like the gym. If you take a year off, it just takes so much longer to get back into it and start feeling the benefits of exercise. Um, how important is it just to continue with the habit of savings? Um, and what do you know? What happens when we stop doing that for a year? It, it feels like a lot of us sometimes forget about the benefits uh, and how good we feel when we put money away. That's a, a wonderful analogy. Yeah, I think that 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 translates very well into this this circumstance i mean the habit of it for sure matters a lot as you mentioned you forget about hey that felt really good and this is sort of you get the immediate gratification of spending it but over time you know just like when you stop working out you get that immediate gratification of great i got to sleep in and i got to <laughs> you know not have to go uh you know work up a sweat and all that but over time you slowly feel you know not as good you know you're feeling worse and worse and worse and I think the same thing's happening both psychologically and like financially, you're getting into worse and worse spot and you're getting into this sort of negative spiral. So I think the, ha the habitual aspect is a big part of it, the behavioral aspect, um, as well as just like the financial and the compounding. So I think like automating savings is, is just an, it's an important behavioral thing that everybody can do to dramatically improve their odds of continuing to grow their, their wealth. Whereas if you have to stop and think about every time you contribute to your investments, you're just, you know, overwhelmingly the evidence shows that you're going to do it less frequently than if you just automate it. We're speaking to David O'Leary. He's a personal finance expert at Wealth Rocket and the founder of Kind Wealth. Uh, David, uh, for those who are listening, saying, I don't have the extra money to put away for anything, forget about long-term savings, I just have to pay my bills. What are some strategies that you could recommend, at least that they could explore, uh, to try to start putting money away into long-term savings uh, when times are really financially tough? Yeah, um, so I'm going to give some some tips. I'm recognizing that legitimately there are people in, in situations that just just don't have enough to to make ends meet, no matter no matter what tips and tricks you give. But I think there are a large percentage of us that that do have excess, you know, do have tips and things that they can do to, to free up some extra cash flow. And so, I, you know, the first thing I would say is, you know, really take a hard, cold look at your, um, at your budget. Like if you haven't added up where all your money is going and where you're spending it each month, um, do that. And ideally look over the past, you know, several months or a year, ideally to sort of see a complete cycle of a year, because sometimes we have some seasonal spending. Um, and, and then start with your biggest expenses and say, you know, are there areas where I can reduce this? Because if you can reduce it by 10% and it's a thousand dollar expense, well, you're saving a hundred dollars a month. So start with kind of your biggest expenses or the ones where, you know, they're really just, you know, if you go through that exercise, you actually may find some old subscriptions or things that you forgot you were still paying into. So get rid of those obvious ones. So kind of take the low hanging fruit and do several iterations of that. You know, do it once, try to make some cutbacks, look at it again three months from now, six, six months from now, and, and do that exercise again. And you probably find some additional areas you can free up some, some more money. Um, and so uh, I think I think those are some of the biggest ways that people can free up extra cash flow. And, and the last thing, just on that note, 
it doesn't have to be an, an extraordinary amount of money. If you free up 25 extra dollars a month, great. Automate that into savings. Don't, don't do nothing about it. If you find that you can free up $25 a month, <laughs> even if it's that small, automate that, you know, set up an automatic contribution for that extra amount of money. David, thank you so much. Those are great tips. I think a lot of people are going to listen and say, you know, this is something I could do proactively, uh, at least make a plan to start saving, even if you can't start doing it today. Uh, I really appreciate your time and breaking down the results of the survey for us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's David O'Leary. He's personal finance expert at Wealth Rocket and the founder of Kind Wealth. Coming up, why one economist says Canada's economy may not be as strong as we think. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is for what it's worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Huck. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. that brings us to the end of another fantastic program. I hope you guys got something out of those two conversations. I really enjoyed speaking to Barry Choi. I've known him for a long time. And like I mentioned there in the interview, um, he now writes for the Globe and Mail about loyalty. So there's obviously an appetite that Canadians want to know more and more about their loyalty points, about their rewards points. You know, I have a very love-hate relationship with rewards cards because sometimes I think, you know, you do get free stuff, right? Why not? You're charging money to your credit card and you're getting points for something and you might as well take advantage of it. Uh, But the other side of it is that we can be incentivized to buy things because there's bonus points days or double the points days or 20 times the points days, right? And that I'm victim of that too. I've been in a store, I collect travel points and I've been in the store and they've been like, ooh, buy two of these and I don't even need two of these and you'll get X amount of points. And I do it because I want the points, not because I want the thing. And so that to me feels like you're just making me buy stuff that I don't actually want. And so that's something that we should all be aware of when we are shopping um, and are we being incentivized by those, those perks or are we actually buying things that we need? The other thing is if you're not paying your credit card off in full on time, then those rewards mean nothing to you because the interest charges on credit cards are so high that you will be paying a lot more for that than what the actual reward is worth. So make sure you're in a situation where when you charge something that you already have that money in the bank to pay for that charge before it becomes due. So those are some things to think about. I also really enjoyed speaking to David O'Leary from Wealth Rocket. He also is the founder of Kind Wealth about the kind of risk we take when we don't continually contribute to our RSP. Now, he was giving the advice that we should start at age 25 contributing to our RSP in some way. And that the earlier you start, the more time your money has to grow, right? Compound interest. It's simple math. When you put your money in uh, 20 years and it has that time to grow, it's going to grow more than if you try, you know, in five years to save the same amount of money. First of all, it's going to take a lot more money to get there. And secondly, you may not be in a position 
to save that much money. Because a lot of us, when we're in our 20s, we don't have, even though we're making lowest salary, probably we will in our entire career, we don't have as many extra expenses. Once you get into your 30s and 40s, you've got children, mortgage, car loans, you may have a student loan lying around that you still have to pay for. Sometimes people are financially supporting their own parents who haven't saved enough for their retirement. Um, And then there's just the cost of life continues to go up. So it can be really difficult to find the money at that time. But despite all of that, uh, David O'Leary points out that most of us can do a holistic look at our money and find somewhere to save. The best thing you can do if you are finding it difficult to contribute to your RSP is just cut back on how much you're contributing. Don't cut it out altogether because savings is a muscle that you have to flex. You have to exercise that muscle all the time. Otherwise you lose it. Otherwise when, you know, a couple years pass and you haven't put any money away for a rainy day, you haven't saved in your RSP, you haven't put money towards that down payment that you wanted uh, for that house that you're hoping to buy. It can be really difficult to now say, okay, now I'm going to start saving. It may not even be in your train of thought anymore. You may not even think about it, right? So he's saying it's really important just to keep that practice of savings going so that when you do get into a better financial situation, when you do start making more money, when interest rates do come down and maybe your debt is a little bit more manageable, you will already have that habit of savings and it'll be really easy to increase it. Before we go, I wanted to talk about this report from Desjardins uh, saying that, you know, Canada's economy is actually weaker than we think. And even though GDP data came in slower than expected, the latest numbers, our data has been really robust for the last couple of years. Now, Desjardins, Desjardins is saying that a lot of that has to do with increased immigration in the last year. So what do you do when you first move to a new country? You rent an apartment, buy a house, buy a fridge, buy a car. You do all these things that really help stimulate the economy. And because immigration has had its highest level that it's been since the 1950s, we are seeing an, an incredible amount of people move into the country. They're all buying stuff. They're all putting roots down, right? So I bought my fridge how many years ago? I'm not going to buy one until that one breaks down. But if I move to a new country, I may need to buy a fridge right away, right? I may need to buy a new car. I may need to definitely set up myself with some furniture. Uh, I'm going to start spending money that, you know, all those setup costs that can be really expensive. And so that's what Desjardins is saying is that really we have to wait for this immigration, uh, this surge of immigration to smooth out before we're really going to understand where our economy is at. Because a lot of people are buying things that it's a one-time purchase. And that's why we're seeing inflation tick a little bit higher. That's why we're seeing GDP higher, except for the the latest data, but really showing that the economy is growing. And so that's just a little uh, word of caution, right? As we go forward, uh, there's a lot of expectation that we may be heading into a recession uh, in 2024. We're definitely due for one. Um, And that is going to mean job losses. That is going to mean the economy will slow down. And then all this spending that's happening right now because of all the new immigration is going to to taper off as well because all those people will be settled. They'll already have all that stuff that they need. They're not going to go in and buy a new couch again because they bought one last year, right? How long 
Do you use a couch? Usually, I would say at least a decade, you use a couch. So they won't be back in the market for that for quite some time. So just something to think about as we navigate ourselves through these really unusual economic times post-pandemic uh, maybe pre-recession, and also this looming, looming issue of fixed rate mortgages coming for renewal in 2024, 2025 in this much higher interest rate environment. That's going to take a lot of disposable income out of Canadian families' pocketbooks, and that is going to definitely slow the economy down. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in today and uh, listening to our show. If you have any comments, if you have any suggestions on uh, what banks should be doing when it comes to the, the conversation I had in the beginning with Kelly, are banks responsible for letting you know the perks that you are now qualify for? What do you think? You can tweet me. Well, no, not tweet anymore, but you can send me on the new new social media platform that used to be Twitter. You can send me a DM on Facebook or on Instagram. You can easily find me just Rabina Ahmed Huck. I think I'm the only one in the world on any of those social media platforms. And let me know what you think. Is it the bank's responsibility to let you know that you qualify for certain perks uh, before you actually step into a bank and make those inquiries yourself? I want to thank you for tuning in for the last hour. I want to thank our technical producer, James Petrovich, for doing all the hard work in the studio. We will see you here next week. Same time, same channel. I'm Rubina Ahmed-Hak. This is For What It's Worth.